Welcome to Find the Magic, the podcast that will help you honor yourself, your kids, and your partner. We'll give you tips and strategies to create peace and authenticity within your family. We inhale a ridiculous amount of books and life tools and distill the information for you. I'm Terilyn Griffin. I'm Caitlin Gabriel. And I'm Felicia Allen. Let's find the magic together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, this week we are so excited to welcome Dr. Finlayson Fife. She has a PhD in counseling psychology and she is a couples, sex, and relationship therapist and we adore her. We've had her on the podcast a few times. She really helps us unpack these strange cycles we get to into our in our relationships that can be destructive and helps us switch into a a greater level of authenticity and mutual respect in our relationships. And today we we jump into the intersection of eroticism and safety and security and how those two can kind of butt heads when we're in long-term relationships and how we can balance them out in our own relationships with our partners. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. This is Felicia, and I am so excited to have Jennifer Finlayson Fife back with us on the podcast. We have done two or three episodes with her. I'll link those, but welcome. Jen, we're excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, today, I I really want to go deep into um, eroticism and the role that that can play or like the, the weirdness we can get into with that when we are parenting and in these relationships that are flooded with mundane tasks. Mm-hmm. So sure. I, I feel like among our listeners and my friends, this is like one of the huge sticky issues with mm-hmm. their sex lives. Do you see that a lot with your, with your clients? Um, yeah. Or at least maybe the way I've say it I think is what you're pointing to is that there's this feeling like eroticism is this kind of destructive force or potentially to stability to family life to responsibility and so there's kind of this ambivalence towards it or like kind of desire to keep it at arm's length yeah and in fact I was just talking to a close friend who has magnificent internal awareness and she told me I feel like I have this wild like wolf in myself that's in this perfect little golden cage and I can't let her out. And there's like this part of me and then there's like the mom parent part of me. And I just thought that was such a, like the visuals, like, whoa, it's so, it's so true. Yeah. So 
I heard this quote from Esther Perel. She's um, also a therapist that I think she mostly focuses on like sexual relationships. And she said, eroticism is the antithesis to everything a healthy family needs, ritual, routine, and knowing safety and security. It is the adventure. And so it's interesting when you hear it that way, that really the, yeah, like the wild erotic part of us can be threatening to the safety and security part. So mm-hmm. how do we, do you, do you, does that make sense to you? And- yes. I mean, yes and no. I mean, okay. and I think Esther Perel probably shares the view of what I'm about to say, which is you can't actually thrive. A marriage can't actually thrive if it's all about stability, security, and being buttoned down. Mm-hmm. So whenever we, you know, human beings want two things. We want security, we want stability, we want predictability, and we want adventure, change, growth, evolution. Mm-hmm. And if we have too little of one or too much of the other, we will be unhappy. Mm-hmm. And so there's this tension between those two realities that are a part of the good life. And when somebody is only about adventure and eroticism and they want to open up their marriage and they want all this, you know, they undermine all the stability that also grounds their lives. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's like only wants stability, is so afraid of eroticism that they don't make any room for it, they end up also undermining the peace of their lives because their marriage is brittle or mm-hmm. lacks any life or there's no joy in the marriage. And so there is... So there is a, it's how do we handle these two competing poles in a way that allows us to thrive? That's really the question. Yeah. And like when you're talking, I feel myself and I think me naturally in my relationships, and I think this can also be loaded maybe with our past, how we were parented, past traumas, all of these things, but I like load myself into the safety and security. Mm-hmm. And so the, the adventure, the eroticism does, it does make me feel like, Ooh, I'm kind of nervous. Like what if that destroys this? Mm-hmm. So how, how have you seen people bounce it or what, what tips do you yeah. give? Well, yeah. So, so first of all, a lot of people who are just afraid of eroticism have good reasons for being afraid of it because a lot of times they've come, this is not speaking to you per se, but yeah. like a lot of times people have come out of situations in which sexuality was a destructive force, right? There was abuse, affairs, you know, it undermined their parents' marriage. There's like a reason why they're thinking this is this indulgent, dark part of humanity and therefore I want to get as far away from it as I possibly can. And it makes good sense because what they're actually trying to get away from, in my view, is not eroticism. They're trying to get away from destructive sexuality, indulgence, mm-hmm. self-service, mm-hmm. darkness, right? Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to stay away from, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, eroticism is not the same. Eros is the root word of eroticism, and Eros is the Greek god of life. and Oh, the Greek god of love, I'm sorry. And in Freud's terms, it's the life force, Eros. In Jung's way of thinking, it's this desire for psychic relatedness, for connection, for transcendence of the self. Mm. Okay. So 
Eros is life affirming. Mm -hmm. It's about feeling more alive, more awake, more uh, hope, more engagement. And so to claim Eros, sexuality is one expression of it. But it's it's affirming of life and love. It makes us feel more whole. I love that. So when you're saying that sexuality is one, so one part of it, it makes me think of when you're talking, I'm like, oh, if you could breathe that life into all, like across the board, it's yep. not like eroticism or safety and security. It's a a feeling that can enhance all parts of your life. It yes. sounds like you're saying. Exactly. So for example, there's nothing less erotic than a red light district. Mm-hmm. Okay. So sex is everywhere, but it's full of despair, hopelessness, a giving up on life. Mm-hmm. And so again, yes, it's this embracing of life energy And it's a way of living. Do we live hopefully? Do we live with our hearts turned to the uncertainty of life, but still seeking to go and create something good, better, solve, even when there's chaos and disorganization and difficulty in our lives? Can we still claim hope in the face of it? Mm -hmm. And that's a way of claiming erotic energy, eros energy. So do you think that, it's the piece of like the uncertainty and vulnerability that keeps people close to it because it, they kind of go like you do. The feeling for me is, so we've been going this way in our relationship or our family for a long time and it's worked and it feels safe. I'm using quotes. So to, to open up to, you know, it, okay. Maybe like the word is, it's just feeling a little stale. Like our, our intimate life is kind of stale. So you do want to breathe air into it, yes. but it does feel a little uncertain. Like, is that the feeling Mm -hmm. that a lot of people have around it? Yes. And I think they're trying to avoid it. And, and how I would say it is that, you know, um, when we link our life with another person, you know, in there's tons of Eros energy in the beginning because it's about possibility and uncertainty and is he into me and what could we create together? And so there's just a ton of that expansive energy in the beginning. But usually when we get married, now we've like actually signed the deal and, you know, now we're going to buy a house together and we don't want so much uncertainty anymore. Yeah. So we, and, and also it's like this person is now locked in with me and what we actually start to do, and Esther Perel talks about this, we start to reduce the intimacy of the marriage. We reduce what we show. Mm-hmm. We are running for security, and therefore we have a hard time talking about the differences. We have a hard time bringing up what our erotic desires are, because what if he thinks it's a stupid idea or that I'm disgusting or, mm-hmm. right? And so we start looking for a way to be safe in marriage to almost because of our own difficulty with embracing the true vulnerability of sex and love. Mm -hmm. Because we're feeling like if we just keep it exactly how it is, we won't lose it. Yes. We were to open up to, to, and we won't disappoint. Yes. Yes. Or we won't, or we won't, or we won't find things about ourselves. We aren't sure we can handle, or we won't, 
you know, we, we often create marriages that are pretty stale because we want this supposed safety. Mm -hmm. And if you want to make it less stale, well, start talking about things you don't, you're too afraid to talk about. (laughs) Start showing them things that you've always wanted sexually, but were afraid to say, meaning Mm -hmm. there's a lot there that often we just do a really good job of pushing away while we load it down with responsibility and duty and expectation to not live in a more authentic, life-affirming way. We turn our partner into a piece of the furniture. I think that's a John Lennon phrase. I can't remember where that comes from. But just like, you know, we turn them into just this kind of stale object in our lives as opposed to another person who has a different history, a different life, a different uh, psychological world in which we will never fully know. We'll never fully know that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which if if you're open to that, that is a very it can bring that Eros energy in because it's the curiosity and it's the newness. Do you, would you say those, I'm looking for like, what are some concrete ways that really like we can start exploring this, but maybe even without our partner being aware of it, because that is part of it that can feel scary is like, what if I am all of a sudden like, let's, embrace eroticism (laughs) and then they're really into it and it makes me feel like whoa (laughs) okay so that's another piece which i think is worth saying is that i think a lot of there's maybe two aspects of what you're saying one Mm -hmm. is i think a lot of women um you know that grow up in religious cultures or whatever they they learn the idea that they're the sober drivers in the sexual interactions and so women often learn that they've got to manage their sexuality and their husband's sexuality for things to be safe, because if they just give an inch, he's going to want, he's going to go crazy. And that you're supposedly the one who's keeping that from happening, which is patently false. It's just simply not true. You're not keeping anything from happening, meaning people get to make their choices in life. But there's this fear of, I don't keep mine tamped down, then something will take over. And I think that's just something to really challenge because we have this idea of a slippery slope and we end up creating one actually in our fear of a slippery slope. Mm. So what I mean is let's go back to your friend in the beginning, who's like in her golden cage. I can't remember how she said it, but she's got her sexuality trapped in this cage. That sexuality is going to get out. Okay. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) It's coming out one way. (laughs) When we are pushing something down, we actually aren't able to integrate it. Mm. And so when we're afraid of something and we keep pushing it away, it it still is working on our lives. And we're not able to really take a look at it and make good decisions and decide who we're going to be relative to it. You know, I was just talking to a, a client about emotion and how she has pushed emotion down and pushed it down, pushed it down because there was no room for her to have it in her family. And it was her way of trying to keep herself lovable but it's not like that emotion went away. It just was not integrated. And so she had lots of chronic pain and lots of difficulty because that emotion is still like wreaking havoc on her life. Mm -hmm. It's the integration that is critical for us to be able to relate to our sexuality in a life affirming way. Mm -hmm. And so when we're running it by fear, I mean, I think what we have to understand is that Yeah, I can start to go to the practical perhaps of this. I can start to know one of the exercises that I give to women in my Art of Desire course is 
to sit down and write down, you know, eight minutes nonstop, what does your sexuality desire? Right now, some people like are terrified of what's come out and they want to just shred it as fast as possible. <laughs> and their and their fear is like, oh my gosh, if I've committed this to paper, now it's now it's gonna take hold of me. Mm-hmm. And that that's just simply not true. Now that I can actually take a look at it, I can make some decisions about what is this showing me about me? What is this thing that I haven't maybe wanted to acknowledge about my sexuality? Um, even if it's like my sexuality doesn't even know what it wants, maybe that's what you write for eight minutes. But even that is important to understand and to make sense of, right? I haven't given any room to it. I haven't, or my sexuality wants things I didn't think a, a good woman would want. It gives you a chance to make sense of it and integrate this into your sense of self to know what you might want to ask for or to do or to not do, right? Because you have more ability to know yourself and make good decisions that are self-respecting and respectful of your relationship by knowing what's there. That's really interesting. The, the opening, so where's the line with that between sometimes I, I feel like so much not exploring with myself of what I want, but more, talking in my relationship about what we want can feel not very attractive because it becomes this big thing, this big issue. And mm. and you see, like for me, I'm like, where's the balance between I want it to feel just like fun and spontaneous and easy. And it, it isn't a problem, but we do have to work through these things to figure out what we want. Like, do you think that there's a a better way to do that? Or is it just figuring out in our relationships? Yeah. So I think what you're saying is that sometimes these conversations get into a certain kind of power struggle. Yes. Um, And they get down to kind of who's going to get what they want. You want something that I don't want. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that it's in a power struggle starts to take on a lot of meaning. Like if you really love me, you just let this stupid thing go. If you really love me, you would accommodate this thing that I want. And it gets more about the demand of the ego in sex than about how do we create a relationship that's alive. Mm-hmm. And so when people are fixated on a certain behavior that they either want or don't want, they're, they're trying to do safety. You know, they're trying to get validation. If you love me, give me this thing I want because I can't ever be happy if I don't get this thing that I want, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's a less mature or, you know, I'll never do that because only disgusting people do that. You know, th- those are both s- sort of lesser forms of relating to an intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. A higher form of relating to it is how do we play together? How do we create something that feels more alive? And it's going to require stretching on both sides. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I work with a lot of men who think because they have more testosterone than their wife, that they understand that they are more developed sexually than their wives. Mm. Mm-hmm. And this is a big misunderstanding. <laughs> 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 one that 
gets me a little worked up. Yes. <laughs> just because you have more testosterone doesn't mean, or just because you want to, you know, have 17 different positions is not necessarily about being less anxious about eroticism. Right. This isn't necessarily about wanting deeper connection and more exposure. Mm-hmm. This is often about, I want to try all these things and I want you to be a good enough wife to give them to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, now this can go the other way of two, of course, you know, sometimes women right. are the ones that are trying to drive these things and the husband doesn't want it. But mm-hmm. I think that while novelty and playfulness is and can be a very good part of a relationship, that it's not at the cost of what I think we're all more anxious about, which is deeper exposure, right? Being flexible to really be with another person, mm-hmm. to really be, to step towards them, to be naked, literally, mm-hmm. to life, to each other, how vulnerable we all are, right? How none of us are as great as we think, <laughs> okay? Like, we're all just humans, very flawed and very mortal, yeah. And I think we're often trying to get away from that in our high desire, low desire demands. They almost can put on its masks to real That's problem. Right. That's right. Yes. That feels really true that the power struggles, and it does often look like low desire, high desire, or present like that. And the deeper question you're saying is, or the deeper problem is the both people's willingness to be actually vulnerable it's really them i i do i do feel that in a lot a lot of conversations i've had about it or with people that it's like we're kind of tossing around all this this position that position the frequency yeah and that's not really the point that's right oh that's That's a point that's a breakthrough for me (laughs) Mm -hmm. really good yeah um so this is kind of shifting gears a little bit but I do think that it's the heart of, like, it, it feels like a big part of an issue for a lot of people, and that is kids and mm-hmm. all the things that have to do with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just feels like life is very child-centered, mm-hmm, yeah. and in my perception, more than it has been yes, in for sure. the past. So I... I don't know. I guess my question is like we put all this energy into our kids and I, I feel like there's a disconnect between then how much we're putting into our intimate relationships. Yes. And have you seen this? Do you have tips on how we can do it better? Yeah. Well, let me just sort of speak to the principle maybe in it for starters. So first of all, yes, I think we are way more obsessed with our kids than even a generation ago. Um, in part because we have fewer children mm. and therefore you, you know, you can't afford to lose one, <laughs> you know, I know that sounds yes. but you know, when you're growing up on a farm and there's, there's 13 kids, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's less obsession with each individual child than if you have two kids. And I think for a lot of parents today, their kids, it's a, it's a different ethos that a lot of people are raising their kids in, but there's this kind of idea that our kids are our measure. Right? This is how we demonstrate who we are in the world is how our kids turn out. And so we also have a lot more anxiety, of course, because of that. I think that kids being kidnapped, kids like, so we, you know, where kids were running around the neighborhood free to roam at mm-hmm. age six and seven, 50 years ago, 
that now that's considered almost reckless as a parent. And so we hover and hover and our kids have actually suffered a lot because of that, you know, because they haven't learned how to sustain their own sense of self and going to this question of uncertainty, work out some confidence in an uncertain world um, mm. from the get-go because it's been kind of safeguarded for them. And then we send them out off to college and think they should be able to get this all done fine. Right. So, um, you know, in college counseling centers are reporting more kids showing up than ever, more depression, more anxiety, more mental health issues because our kids haven't had a culture that's supported a lot of this autonomy that they in fact need. So we are off in this way. And so when parents are showing up at birthday parties, waiting there the whole time, you know, hovering at every there's this inability to be a whole person. Now, before I say the past was so much better, I mean, think about it though, you're on a farm and you can't keep track of kid number 12 because you know, there's so much going on. Uh, you're also probably not doing a lot of romance then either. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways in which we avoid intimacy and romance because it's our human inclination to do that. Mm-hmm. We all like sexual validation. Um, even the low desire people out there like to know that you're wanted. We like for people close to us to think we're amazing, to think we're attractive, which is to want us, which is very different than liking the intimacy of sex or the intimacy of a marriage. Mm -hmm. And so we confuse validation for intimacy, but almost all of us are struggling on some level to show up and be fully honest in a marriage, to let ourselves be known, even the undeveloped parts and the inconvenient parts and the, um, and the less, you know, and the sexual parts of us were often hedging. And this is why people often go to have an affair because an affair partner, you can just leave if that doesn't work out. And so you can show parts of your eroticism and tell them things about yourself. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she doesn't understand that and blah, blah, blah. And, And they can kind of create these collusive validation systems because you don't actually have to work out a life with that person. And so it's a very tempting alternative to the exposure and the rawness of an actually intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because when I think about um, what you're saying about the the being desired, being wanted loop, yeah. um, I don't know if I'm just going to throw this out and you can give me feedback, but it feels like, so I'm the primary caregiver and I have four kids and all of them desire me and want me very purely and without a lot of um, kind of demands, like it, it feels very easy to accept their desire and their want. And I, I know how to kind of show up for them in a way that is, it is exhausting, but it's not as vulnerable as Yes. My husband's desire. Because you're on a pedestal for them. Yes. yes. And and of course, you should be. You're their mother. And so they see you as the source. And it's very validating for many of us to feel like I am the epicenter of this child's world. And they love me. And, you know, I remember my four-year-old being like, Mom, you're amazing, pretty. You know, and and he... (laughs) It's so cute. (laughs) But, you know, he did like the admiration. Like, everything Uh you are, Mom, is, is wonderful. 
yeah, that feels great, you know, and yeah. <laughs> and a lot of mothers have a hard time letting go of that, letting their kids no longer admire them, letting their kids go and choose another person to love and move on, right? Because it feels yes. great to be the epicenter. Mm-hmm. So, which is very, very different than someone who is desiring you as a peer on the same level. It's much more exposed. They don't need you, even mm-hmm. though we may try to have it be that they need us. And so it's, it's scarier. Yes. Yeah. And there's like this integration where I sometimes feel like, and and maybe this is in all family structures where I, I feel that my husband can enter this realm of feeling media-ish like a kid, but then I'm like, um, you're an adult. I need Mm -hmm. you to be an adult so we can have our adult intimacy mm-hmm. and that gets really muddy. Mm-hmm. So like, do you, what would you tell our listeners who are mm-hmm. feeling like there's not enough separation in their, in their roles to where they can feel like, Oh, I can, I can be like this intimate erotic person with my husband because I've kind of separated that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so first of all, it's, it's kind of systemic. And what I mean by systemic is that it's often not just a husband doing something or just a wife doing something Mm -hmm. that's creating this problem because a lot of women, um, for example, when they become mothers because of their own anxieties about eroticism and sexuality and, and even personhood sort of put their personhood on hold, their sexuality on hold because they're trying to create a sexless, needless, wantless reality to be a good mother. A lot of people have learned that's what makes somebody a good mother. And they're trying to provide something different than what they had. So a lot of times, um, I'll just speak to the female side of it for a minute. Women are actually, how to say, they're, they're going, they're not a full person anymore. They turn into a mother. Now it is true that motherhood is high demand and that a lot of your desires and other interests and so on necessarily get put on hold when the kids are small and there's a lot to do. So I understand about that reality, but there's a resignation for a lot of people where they kind of disidentify with being a sexual woman and a partner in the midst of parenting. And again, it's trying to get at safety and I can be needed in this role and I feel good in this role and I don't even know about that world and it scares me and I don't, you know, and And so it's just a kind of disintegration of a reality that then has impact on the partnership. Because just to give an alternative, like a woman can be in the throes of parenting, a full-time mom, and hold on to herself as a full woman with other interests, desires, and realities and possibilities, even if she's not engaging those right now. And still hold on to them in her sense of who she is, even if she's choosing to be at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So do you see, what about the women who felt like, I what, I always felt super sexual mm-hmm. and like really at home with myself, know myself, like had this sexual, I guess, identity. Then they get married and kind of like had trouble integrating that into a marriage relationship or it could be a man yeah. too but I just see it happen with women more yeah yeah well um 
Yeah, there's plenty of women who absolutely feel that way before marriage, and mm-hmm. then they get married and it goes away, and there can be various reasons. It can be a struggle within herself, right? Like she turns it into, I mean, very seldom is it just in one person. Usually it's a co-created meaning, but, you know, it could be like, I, you know, um, one couple where the, the sexual she loved the idea of sex. She was way into it premaritally. And then when they got married and it was her first time being sexual, it didn't go well the first night. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's probably mm-hmm. true for most people. Okay. That mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> are having sex for the first time is, you know, there's a lot to work out there, but she quickly turned it into, she's being a failure. She's mm-hmm. not being the right kind of wife. And then she didn't want to be sexual because it kept reinforcing this idea that she was a disappointment, even though I don't think the husband was saying she's a disappointment. And so she's quickly like turning it into this area that made me feel alive and whole and enticing to this area that makes me feel broken and, and that I have to take care of his needs and it still makes me feel bad to quickly like going to a low desire position because it was mm-hmm. no longer felt desirable to be there. But so, so yes, a lot of women have learned to do that and a lot of women do do that intuitively. But I think where it intersects with the man is often a man has learned well, this is what a wife should do in marriage. And I have needs. And, and, mm-hmm. and so he is acting like a child. He's acting like a needy child because he's looking for her to make his sexuality legitimate. He's looking to her to make him feel desired and good. And so he also is, this is not so much about intimacy as the pursuit of validation, right? This isn't so much about... I desire you as do you desire me. Okay. So I'm speaking in the stereotypical way here, of course, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it, it can quickly turn into this thing I do for the next child that shows up after five, right? It turns into this kind of struggle rather than look, we're partners first and foremost. We really choose each other. We love each other and we want to have children together, but, but those kids are going to grow up and leave. And we're a partnership and we are in our core, a sexual partnership. That is attraction and desire is what brought us together. Romance is what brought us together, right? Mm -hmm. Eros energy brought us together and Mm -hmm. we owe it to ourselves and our kids. If we want to show them how to be whole people and to have their own intimate marriages, how to be a loving couple that genuinely likes each other is the kindest thing you can do for your kids. You never want to neglect your kids because you're having so much sex. Okay. That would not be good. Probably maybe once in a while, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, you don't want to neglect your responsibility to your kids, but I would argue part of your responsibility to your kids is to show them how to be full adults, Uh not to just replicate the problem. When does, who gets to thrive? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think this was a stair pearl also, but I heard a therapist say, if, if you have in your mind that all the other person wants is sex, then you're missing, you're missing it. Like mm-hmm. they want mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. but it can. Yeah. That can often, be true, but it's not always true. Yeah. It can often feel like, but it seems like it's pretty much sex. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so yeah, I, I appreciate cool. whoever said that the point, because I think there's real truth in it that I think oftentimes when somebody is higher desire for sex, they can get turned, you know, you're such a pig, right? You, you just, all you want, you're such a heat, you know, it's just the hedonism and, and it's just not fair. It's not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, um, 
men have are often more comfortable in their bodies and it's a way to express tenderness and love and affection and care. And if that makes you uncomfortable showing up there, you can, as a woman, you can easily reduce it. You can try to reduce it to something that is not fair. Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of men really do love and they love well through their sexuality. Mm -hmm. However, it is also true. And I think women have lots of psychobiological reasons to scrutinize do you want me or do you just want sex with me? Now, some, mm -hmm. some people just turn it into, oh, you just want sex because they're trying to get away from their own anxiety. But right. sometimes people are actually tracking, wait, you're not into me. You're into having sex with me, okay, because I'm the only option. <laughs> right. If you loved right. me, like, you would understand, you'd want to understand why I don't like this, mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. I actually find desirable, that yeah. you would understand, read the room and see that I'm actually not into this in the way you're into it. And so when, you know, when there's a lot of like, I just want you to be who I want you to be. And the partner in the, the person who has that being projected onto them can feel it. Well, it doesn't feel like love. It feels mm -hmm. like neediness and mm -hmm. expectation or entitlement. And that's really undesirable, right? Because women are more biologically vulnerable in sex. Women are choosier about it. And mm -hmm. they care about, are you, are you invested in my well-being as a person? And so that's an important question. And you don't want to say sex isn't a good way to take care of one another. It can be a wonderful way to take care of one another. And a language that your husband may speak very well, actually. Mm -hmm. But there's a distinction between do you love me and will you have sex with me and I love you and I desire you. Those are two different minds. Yeah. And I think that underlying vulnerability for a lot of women is like, it, it is more of like a, I need to make sure and check all these boxes before I'm going to go there with you. And I, I do feel like a lot of the times men are, it is really hard to explain too to, to your partner, how vulnerable it does feel. It, it's like, they, they don't really understand it. Do you have um, advice for couples trying to bridge that? Like, I need to feel a little, little more safe. I don't think safety is the right frame. It's okay. one that we use a lot in the culture currently. I don't know if safety and sex is very exciting. So what I mean is, <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. It's not really the right way to think about it. I, I don't mean to, you should be unsafe. I'm just saying. Right. Looking to your partner to make you feel safe is not a good position to be in. Checking boxes is about control, mm -hmm. which is different than do I see and understand that my spouse desires me, even if sex makes me anxious, even if I think it's poor judgment, even if I think it's because he doesn't really, really know me that he desires me. Um, is that anxiety about my insecurity or is it about who I'm with? Mm -hmm. right, when I first started dating my husband, I think I had a lot of insecurity about whether or not I was lovable, right? If I actually stopped making him chase me, would, and I just stood still, would he be like, oh, 
okay, yes. you're not as great as I thought. You seemed a lot more enticing when I couldn't have you. And I was really mm -hmm. afraid that's ultimately what it would be. And so I never wanted to actually slow down and, and choose, right, and let him see me. Um, and so I would kind of get these boxes, so to speak, of things he would do if he loved me. He would say more affirming things right? He would agree with me on this, this idea. He would want to talk about the things that I like talking about. And so I had these ways of like trying to, in a way, kind of prove that there was limitations in his love. I think mm -hmm. so that I didn't have to love is really what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And as I was like, kept growing, I sort of started self confronting that there was all kinds of evidence that this man loved me and knew me even though he wasn't always affirming in the ways I wanted, didn't validate everything I thought, you know, was his own person. But I knew that he loved me. And so I could better see that I'm trying to turn it into something so I have control. Now, I work with people where there's plenty of evidence that he doesn't want to actually know me. He doesn't want to know who I actually am. He wants me to be who he thinks I should be or the wife he wishes he were with. And so if you think this is really about yeah, you don't care about me, then I think it's important to talk about that. Like, mm -hmm. honey, I do want to have a good sexual relationship. I don't want to feel like I owe you that, that this is what you're owed after coming back at the end of the day mm -hmm. and that if I were more developed, I would do it your way. I want a partnership. I want to feel like you care about me. And I feel like you're more resentful of me than you are invested in my happiness and in the question of who I am. And so there's always this sense of you being owed and how I'm not the right person for you. And if I were more like you, that I would be more grown up or I'd be more the right kind of person rather than you knowing who I am and why I'm not that interested sometimes in the sex that you're offering. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a woman who's holding a self and saying, I want to be desired for me. Yeah. Not changing to be what they're desiring. Right. Mm -hmm. To earn something. Yes. Yeah, I love that. I think that they're like to bring it full circle. I think like the exercise, at least that I take from this is like, how are we both putting on masks yes. of what I want? I want this or I need this instead of opening up who we truly are, which, which that that like Eros energy infiltrating your entire life, I think will naturally lead to more, more sex, more Absolutely. intimate encounters without having to work on it. Like it's a problem, which can often, that's what often feels like a, a turn off to me. I'm just, that's going to be an issue. I don't right. know. <laughs> I don't no, like exactly that. like hammering down on all the troubles. Yes. It's a very yes. deadening way. And, and of course, you you know you can deal with your troubles in your marriage in a way that's not deadening. You know when when it gets into a power struggle, it's deadening. If it's like 
you know, am I willing to face myself here? Can I see where my partner's right? And if my, and my partner's also willing to look at where I'm right, that's how people get out of power struggles is they, they pick up what they can actually see is their part in the problem. And they, they, they push themselves to deal with what's true. I mean, that is to invite Eros energy actually into your life yeah. is to embrace growth. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think I do these couples tours in Europe and a lot of it is these opportunities to, to self-confront and to talk to your partner about how you do things that are unloving and unfair and have undermined the sexual relationship. And they're out having experiences where learning to dance uh, Seviana or they're making pasta together. And so they're having these growth promoting experiences, mm-hmm. these ways of experiencing one another in a new way while also talking at a more honest level about who they are. And it's very life-affirming, growth-affirming, expansive. So there's a lot more sex going on on these tours. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because hitting at both, it's like going yeah. deeper. Exactly. And it's also new. It's like Exactly. Both. Exactly. Oh. It's, it's vertical and, and horizontal novelty. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Well, You've given us a lot to chew on here. Is there anything else you want to leave with our with our audience? Any any new offerings you have? Anything we should be looking at from you? Well, if you want to just know more about the work I do, you can go to my website, which is finlayson-fife.com. And if you don't know where to start, I'm, there is a free podcast with conversations like this, Conversations with Dr. Jennifer. And then there's a paid podcast where I'm working with actual couples on these kinds mm-hmm. of issues. And so it's, I'm doing couples coaching. They're anonymous. They're they're using pseudonyms, but I'm I'm actually working on these very typical challenges, and you can sort of see yourself in these couples, mm-hmm. and learn from my input to them. So that's called Room for Two, and then I have five online courses that, uh, plus some mini courses that we're actually putting out too now. But they're all for helping you address these aspects of your emotional and sexual intimacy of your marriage. So yeah. Oh, so cool. I didn't know about your new podcast, so I'm going to have to go listen. Oh, yeah. And yes, well, I loved having you as always. Thanks yeah. for helping us. Thank Magic. you for having me. <laughs> me, 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 me. <laughs> Brown cows. <laughs> <laughs>